Welcome to the Jewish Bazaar podcast. I am your host, hostess, you decide. Uh, I'm comfortable with both. Um, Jessica Chaffin, I have absolutely no training that makes me um, the person to be doing this other than an inquisitive mind. Some would say a Jewish mind. I won't because I don't want them. I don't want them chasing me with their candelabra. I've seen way too many, uh, way too many Eastern European films from the early 20th century. But um, in any event, today's topic is Jewish geniuses. And are there more of them is the question, or this is the topic I'm putting to our experts today, which is how did such a small group of people seem to produce, seemingly I'll say, produce such a disproportionate um, number of intellectuals, artists, thinkers, uh, political scientists, whatever you want to call them, and are we just imagining this or is this a real thing? Uh, and I'm, you know, take your pick from history. Einstein, Freud, Spinoza, Marx. Pick your favorite Jewish genius. I'm going to add to the pile my two co-hosts today. Mr. I think he goes by Mr. Tony Michaels, who is the, I can't remember, professor of something. He can tell us. What it, it, it's, it's a named position. And, and Eddie Bortnoy, who's also very important. Gentlemen, can you give me, can you give me your credits again? I am. Uh, I'm not, I actually don't go by Mr. I go by here, Dr. Professor Tony Michaels, <laughs> professor of American Jewish history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Wonderful. And um, Edward? I'm just going to stick with Eddie Portnoy. I work at the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research. I do I think you're the, of things I there. think you're the head of exhibitions, if I'm not mistaken. That's one of, that's one of the things yeah. that I do. Yeah. One of the hats I wear at the YIVO. So, fellas, let's just get right into it. Are there more Jewish geniuses or where the, con- the conditions are just right? for Jews to squawk and, and make a noise? Um, the answer is no. Oh, to which? A- end of podcast. <laughs> the answer is no. Okay. <laughs> but it does feel good as a Jew to say that, to feel like there are more. It does seem to play into that, the idea of, cho- to be in all seriousness, I do think there is a trope um, which sometimes can be used for good and sometimes for bad, meaning for pro-Jewish and for anti-Semitic purposes, which is this idea of, obviously there's the idea of the Jews as the chosen people. And then there seems to be this subset idea of like this sort of chosen Jewish brain, like somehow that there are these incredible Jewish brains that just end up in Jewish bodies and do amazing things. And I think that's probably not true, but I hate to- Eddie, let me ask, Eddie, let, let me ask, have you ever met a dumb Jew? Definitely. I've met many, many yeah. dumb Jews. <laughs> can, can you his, name his, one? His sto- I will I'm related to a few. I, I, I will not name any living stupid Jews. If there, was no with, such with thing as, if there was no such thing as a dumb Jew, why would there be in Yiddish schnook, shlemiel, shlemazel, schmuck? Why do these words exist? Don't forget shmageget. There you go. Um, one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, no, yes, of course. Jessica's right. There, there are... There's a plethora of uh, of names for idiots, morons, fools in in Yiddish. Um, the byproduct of intermarriage. Let's be really. Let's be I don't realistic. Think so. I really, I really don't Village think so. Idiot. No, no, there, there are um, 
you know, throughout history, many more stupid Jews than than highly intelligent Jews. Uh, it's just that we have a tendency to to remember the highly intelligent Jews more so than than the morons. Okay, but when we're looking at a sampling of uh, societal change makers, iconoclasts, whatever you want to call them, over the last, let's say, 500 years, 1,000 years, whatever it is, we are disproportionately represented in that class. And so, I mean, the bomb, anyone? But my, <laughs> but my question to you, I mean, and, and maybe that's not fair to, to put that in a, in a scientist in that category, but is this a thing, Tony, or is this a. I, I thought that was a reference to the Daz band. No, you dropped a bomb on me. That's what yeah. you thought. No, I was talking about you dropped a bomb on a bunch yeah, I of know, people. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was the Gap Band. It was the Is Gap it the Gap Band? band? Yeah. The yeah. Dad. Oh, so, Who's sorry. the Dad? I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I think that's it's, the Gap it, Band that Eddie saw at a Jewish it, it, bar mitzvah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was some, someone I saw at a bar mitzvah. It was a Gap obviously. Band tribute band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Daz Band. You know what? There, there, there must somewhere be a Daz Band. <laughs> well, there is in, in your memory, but Tony, is this a thing? And, well, and I was about to. I was about to say yes until I heard Eddie a second ago <laughs> humiliate all of us. Uh, but no, I would be the last person to deny the, the, the plethora of stupid Jews. I think they should be recognized. I think they should be honored. Sure. Um, and, but at the same time, the, the, no, I think it is true. There's been a noticeable number um, of iconoclastic, important Jewish thinkers of, of all varieties it's not just, you know, and a lot of people have noticed this in good ways and bad ways. I mean, meaning there are a lot of people who have celebrated this and there are those who have found this deeply dis disturbing and upsetting that um, these great Jewish thinkers um, existed. Well, well, the people who were upset by it, anti-Semites thought these people were subversive and, un and, and troubling and, and dangerous and they didn't like them at all. So people have viewed this phenomenon from, from at least two different angles. But, but there are a lot of them is the point. Yeah, but that's also of... the byproduct of excluding a, or is it, I'm asking, I guess, the byproduct of excluding certain groups from participating in uh, traditional society. So Maybe. where does this, if you the accept margins, the idea. If you exist right, in it's, the it's, it's marginalization. Mar mar well, if you accept the idea that there are larger than ordinary number of great Jewish thinkers who are Jews and... Um, and then the question is, yeah, what produces them? Is it because is it genetics? Is it does it come from religion somehow? Just is this a rise from Judaism or, or something else? Or is and, it the environment? Or is it the and what you know? I guess what you just suggested, Eddie, is there's something about the environment? It's social. There's something sociological about it. Right. There's something I about the condition have, of the Jews. We have to reject the idea that it's genetic. I think. I, I, I mean, think so. Yeah. For all Although, kinds of reasons, not just for the purposes of this conversation, but for all kinds of reasons, that's a dangerous way of thinking. And again, like everything we're talking about right now, there's a duality to it. And so then you start getting into eugenics and the Nuremberg laws. And I mean, the, that's how where all of those things are born from. Right. So let's talk but, about sociologically why this is a thing or... I mean, I don't know. You, I feel like you have opinions on this. I, you know, my view is the one I'm not, it's not original to me, but uh, 
my view is that something about the Jewish condition, the situation of Jews on the margins of society, in between their own communities, they're part of a minority community, they might not fit into their own communities, but they're not part of the larger majority either. You know, that that situation of the last couple hundred years in which Jews who were moving away from traditional Jewish communities, traditional Jewish life, and wanting to be part of the larger societies around them, but finding themselves unable to fully integrate and join German society, French society, American society, that experience of not being fully in one community or another, um, I think produces insight. I think produces greater insight into the world around them because they don't accept what they see as natural or fixed. They can view it as strange or unusual or something that has to be questioned. Right. There's this sense of, of, uh, you know, when you're marginalized, you're outside looking in. And if you want to aspire to the best aspects of any society you want to be a part of, uh, you're able to see it from the outside. and and, And in that way, you're able to assess it in a different way than someone who's on the inside. Yeah. The, so the great... does it also come from a desire for belonging? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. It, it, it comes from a desire to belong, but not finding belonging or not wanting to belong uh, to societies that don't seem fair, mm-hmm. just, desirable. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it comes from a desire for belonging, but not being able to achieve it. And so wanting to create a different world in which belo- uh, in which one could belong on 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 your own terms not on the terms that are presented to you so what right, are it's a, practical it's a third choice what are practical ex, uh, examples of this i mean i i named a bunch of people at the beginning of the show but i'm wondering what's a practical example of this Be, but before who, who that falls i just into this category or yeah no please i was just going to say you know the ter- the the great Black scholar W.E.B. Du Bois came up with the term double consciousness to describe what Eddie was referring to as standing on the outside looking in. You know, you've got kind of one foot in, but one foot out. And and that gives you a double consciousness where you see yourself through the eyes of the majority and you see Mm -hmm. the majority through the eyes of your particular minority uh, marginal status. And I think what he was describing, he he was talking about African-Americans in the period after slavery, but we can also describe some, what we're talking about, Eddie and I are talking about is something similar with Jews. So, but an everyday Jew could feel that. What yeah. makes these people bizarre, for lack of a better word? Well, I think every, there, yeah, there are a few, you're right. You're right. There are a few Why do they ways pop? to- I mean, it's, 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 it, these, these are the people who are, who are able to create a third space in order to place themselves. It wasn't in Jewish society uh, and it wasn't completely in Gentile society, but it was sort of uh, a third space, a universal or neutral space that they could exist in uh, you know, without the, the, the societal uh, issues relating to being Jewish in either Jewish or Gentile society. You know, I, but, uh, you know, I think Jessica's question is, is, is it's a really good one. You know, what about the everyday Jews? And, and I think there were multiple responses to this situation, the situation of being part of a minority community that wants acceptance and, and maybe thinks it's attainable. Um, you know, I think there were multiple responses to, to that reality from everyday Jews. You know, some said, a minority said, look, we're going to cling more tightly than ever to being Jewish, you know. Um, you see this among certain strands of Orthodox Jewry, 
that says, oh, what we want to do is dig in our heels and keep the outside world at bay. And then you had others who said, you know, we're not going to think about it too much. We just want to make a living, uh, adapt in ways we have to adapt. And then there are others who say, no, we want in. We want into French society or American society. Some of those people became hyper patriots, you know, that say we're, you right. know, we are good, proud Americans, damn it. They and choose we have country over religion. Yeah. Or, or ethnicity. And say, so you then know, would it be fair to say that some of these uh, or ethnicity, would it be fair to say then that a lot of these geniuses, as we're calling them, uh, rejected their Judaism in favor of their ideas or ideals, whatever they were. And you had were talking a little bit earlier um, when we were chatting about this idea of the non-Jewish Jew. And is that a prerequisite for a lot of these people? Or is that, how does that play into this? Because it's actually, uh, I understand it's in direct conflict with this question of the Jewish genius, but I suppose you're born, you're raised, does it ever quite leave you, even if it's not your primary identity? And mm -hmm. did that, and by rejecting that as your primary identity, did that make it possible for some of these people to, for instance, Karl Marx, probably a great example, mm -hmm. um, you know, raised a Jew, but not interested no, no, in no. or not raised a Jew, not raised a Jew. Okay. His, his, his parents converted and he was sort of why nominally because they wanted to, they wanted to, you know, the Tony was talking about people who wanted to join the general societies and his parents wanted to join German society. Oh, converted from Judaism. Yes. They converted to Christianity, oh, okay. to Sorry. Lutheranism. I thought I you meant the other way around. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, okay. So like, let's dial back on Karl Marx for a second, but Karl Marx, the ultimate example of a non-Jewish Jew who then comes up with a, a philosophy or whatever you want to call it that uh, negates religion. Yeah. Right. But he creates that Jew? third space. Because well, you know, I don't know if 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 you were to ask him, he might deny it. But we're um, talking about him as part of this conversation because it's true. Because everyone does, everyone genuinely sees him as a Jew and a product of Jewish society. Yeah, there, you know, so he, this is actually an interesting point. You know, where where some of the people we're talking about wouldn't necessarily consider themselves Jews at all. Right. The, the, the term non, non-Jewish Jew was, was coined much later by uh, someone named Isaac Deutscher, who gave a very famous lecture in the 1950s and um, that became an essay that, that it's still, it's still read today. It's in print. People refer to it a lot. And that term non-Jewish Jew has come into circulation. And so what he did was he looked at all these people we're talking that have been mentioned before, Marx being one of them, Spinoza, Leon Trotsky and others. And he said, look, I know he, he said there, there's a there's a phenomenon in history. And that is these you have this kind of lineage of Jews or he made them into a lineage of mm -hmm. Jews who cease thinking themselves as Jews. Um uh, they were some. They were kinds of you know revolutionary thinkers of one kind or another, and they didn't think of themselves as Jews. They rejected it, or in Marx's case, their parents did. But he said we can actually think of them of Jews as a certain kind. That was what Deutscher was saying. We can think of people from Spinoza to Freud and others in between and beyond. We can think of them as Jews, but a certain kind of Jew. And he called them non-Jewish Jews. And what he meant was they came from Jewish backgrounds of one kind or another, came to reject it. 
and they came to reject it because they were th- they came to believe in larger I, they, they developed larger conceptions of humanity um, that said that, that wanted to move beyond ethnicity, religion, nationality into something big like humanity. And um, that's and that's so that's what they were. That's what they were going for. So people he was calling Jewish or non-Jewish Jews were those kinds of people. And he said their Jewish backgrounds mattered. It, it helped determine the direction they took in life, you know, because um you know, because they went through what we were talking about at the beginning, that they were raised as Jews or knew they had Jewish background, uh, backgrounds of one kind or another, and they were, but, but they were trying to move beyond it. And uh, for one reason or another, they either couldn't or tried to create alternatives to the given world. And I forgot why I'm going on in this direction, but I, 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 I <laughs> but guess who you falls what you were that, asking, Jessica. <laughs> but who falls into that category? Oh, yeah. So um, look, Deutscher himself, I'll start with Deutscher. Deutscher himself did. He, he was raised, I uh, was born in Poland into a, a very religious family, a Hasidic family. Um, he was groomed to be a rabbi. Everyone thought he was going to be a great Torah scholar. And uh, is it, but he rejected it as a teenager and joined the communist movement in Poland and uh, went on to become a great historian of the Russian Revolution. He was a biography of, biographer of Trotsky and Stalin. And uh, so Trotsky, he, does he fall into that category? Oh, he, he's sort of the, the example par excellence for Deutscher, um, Russian Jew, although he was unusual already because his parents were farmers. He didn't speak Yiddish. He didn't grow up in a particularly, you know, dense Jewish community. But for him, Trotsky is a great example. But that I mean, Trotsky, proves your point even further about marginalization, because yeah. he was because Trotsky wasn't just marginalized by greater society by being a Jew. He was mm-hmm. marginalized in Jewish society as well. Yeah, he didn't because quite. He like, wasn't living a, a Jew, right. living a non-Jewish ish life. You know, he could have, he had a choice. There are, he could have said, you know, I want to get in deeper into Jewish society. So, some, some of his contemporaries made that choice to become more Jewish identified. Uh, and he said, uh, no, he said no to that. I don't want to do that. But he also didn't want to be a Russian and didn't think of himself as a Russian. So, um, and this is why he's a hero to someone like Deutscher, because he, he, he said, uh, Trotsky famously said, I'm not a Jew and I'm not a Russian. But being he a said, Russian at that time was... Under the czarist regime, right? Yeah. So that that's what it meant to be a Russian. Well, not what, what meant, we think of as being a Russian now. That's part of it, but the other part of it is he thought national identities were narrow, mm-hmm. just like religious identities and ethnic identities were narrow. And he said, you know, what he believes in is the work, the workers of the world. That mm-hmm. that was his identity, the workers of the world. So Trotsky exemplifies this this phenomenon. And then he came up with some very original theories. We don't necessarily have to go into now, but he came up with a whole theory of revolution that is crucial to, was crucial to the overthrow of the Tsar by the Bolsheviks. So for Deutscher, Trotsky is a perfect example of this, of a, of a non-Jewish Jew. Right. And Trotsky is largely perceived as a Jew by yeah. people. And that's why he's constantly asked, you know, are you a Jew? Are you a Russian? I mean, obviously he speaks Russian and, you know, language, of course, is the carrier of culture. So he's, you know, to certain people, he seems more Russian than he does Jewish, or maybe even to himself, he may seem a bit. And this is why he chooses this third option, this I'm a social Democrat. I'm, you know, I'm, I support the workers revolution. But and isn't that, it that to him becomes a culture. Isn't it interesting though, that you can't really win from either side. Like all of these people are about self-determination 
and I don't know whether you call it humanism or or what you call the interest in this idea of like one humanity and how mm-hmm. humanity functions, or in Trotsky's case, the worker, mm-hmm. but meaning society, an yeah. equal society. But isn't it interesting that no, whichever side you come from, Jews always want to claim you as Jews. So you're telling mm-hmm. me Karl Marx's parents converted to Lutheranism. Yes. And so Marx really had no Jewish education. He just came from Jews and that and that that is a Jewish idea that if your mother was Jewish, you're Jewish, et cetera, et cetera. So the, mm-hmm. the matrilineal idea of Judaism. So we'll take him in casual conversation. But his rejection of his, his own personal self-determination reje- and rejection of his identity is still rejected by society at large. And we see this happening now. We see people questioning Jews' loyalty to Israel versus America or Israel versus France or whatever it is. And no one would ever ask an Italian-American uh, whether they're loyal to Italy or in fact, Actually, it would I be something them, to be- I ask, I ask them all the time. But it would be something to be celebrated. Yeah. People think that's yeah. great if you want to be Italian-American. or And I'm sure- uh, that we see that that the black community feels very similarly about who is your allegiance to each other or to this country. And it's this fundamental sort of irony of we in America in particular are supposed to live in a society where it's all about self-determination and individualism. And to give you an example of uh, a tragic example of what you're describing is you know, Trotsky, Trotsky was a major architect of the Russian Revolution. He was the second most important Soviet leader after Lenin. You know, 10 years later, he's driven out, 10 years after the 1917 revolution, he's driven out of Soviet Russia by Stalin, who starts referring to Trotsky in public as Bronstein, as Brunstein, because that's mm-hmm. his family name. And it was Stalin's way of saying, Trotsky, my enemy, the enemy of the Soviet, Soviet Revolution, he's really a Jew. Yep. Right. And in the end, he was killed by an agent of Stalin in Mexico City, 1940. So the revolution he did so much to create uh, wound up killing him, driving him into exile and killing him. And in a certain way, Trotsky, the revolutionary, the non-Jewish Jew, winds up meeting a cruel fate, in part because he's Jewish, but not only only because of that. Or or let's put it this way. He winds up sharing a fate with so many other Jews who are driven into exile and killed. So, um, who are the other sort of geniuses you would put in this category? Did did Freud reject his Jewish identity or his religion? Did Einstein or or do these things? Uh, I don't want to say reject. Maybe that's a little strong. But maybe the idea is that these things are uh, subjugated to their other ideas and their and their other their mission in life. Yeah, I don't think that either of them rejected it, and um, they it was just not terribly important. It, w- it was not the main thrust of their life and work. Um, you know, I don't know if, you know, Freud lit the menorah, <laughs> you know, maybe he did once, but uh, it, it's, you know, he's, he's not, he's not known. He, he really lived in kind of a, uh, a neutral secular area. Um Except Culturally. for the fact that he had to flee Austria because right. yes, that's his daughter right. that's... was arrested and wait, after the Anschluss, right? And, or I wasn't, sorry, that's not the Anschluss. The, um, the Anschluss is Czechoslovakia. But when the Germans 
came to Austria. Okay, is that's right. not the that's Anschluss? The Anschluss. That's the Anschluss. That's is it? I thought the yeah, an, yeah. I thought the Anschluss was just Czechoslovakia, the no, annexation no. of Czechoslovakia. No, that's the Sudetenland you're thinking of. So okay, so when the Germans come to uh, Austria in 1938, the Anschluss. Yeah, he has to flee to London, right? He leaves a month later. I, I believe. Yeah. I think they come in October and he leaves in November, or they come in September and he lives in leaves in October, like that. Um, so it's interesting because again, no matter what you want, societies just like with Trotsky, right? Your uh, Jewishness always catches up to you whether yeah. it catches up to you whether you want it or not. And Deutscher didn't really, Deutscher really didn't confront that, or in, or in a way he did, but um, he didn't want to say it entirely because so many of the people he talks about, I'd even put Trotsky in this category. By the time or during during the um, during the nineteen thirties, after after Hitler rises to power, a good number of these people start changing their thinking. Who, who, those who are alive start changing their thinking about their Jewish identity. So even Trotsky starts you know, saying things in interviews like, you know what? I wish I had learned Yiddish. You know, Yiddish has produced a great literature and I, and I, I would like to read it in the original. Or he'd say, you know, anti-Semitism actually really is a big problem. Um, he also and, wanted to become a moil, but that's well, not why. His, his hands were, his hands were too <laughs> shaky. His hands were very shaky. A moil is the person who, who performs the circumcision for people that don't know. Deutscher has claimed he was the best, great, greatest moyle to ever come out of Russia. And I, I think that's an exaggeration. Right. Very fast. He's quick with his hands. So yeah. the same thing that makes it possible for these people to blossom is the same thing that uh, catches up with them, as Eddie was saying, at least well, during, world, during that the period. World, the world went a different direction. You know, they didn't plan. No one planned on Nazism. They thought the world was getting better. They well, thought planned Nazism. He, he, Freud didn't, though. I think right. that's the important point. <laughs> <Right. laughs> didn't, didn't, didn't expect it. No, he didn't expect it. He was not in on the planning, for sure, and he didn't expect it. I mean, all these people were very optimistic, you know, from Marx to Freud to Trotsky. They're optimistic. They thought the world was getting better. They thought humanity was capable of freeing itself from past superstitions and bigotries, and so, including anti-Semitism. And then, so Hitler wasn't supposed to happen, and he did. And it was a it was a tremendous crisis for the world, but for Jews who who, who adhered to this way of thinking that they had moved beyond Jewishness uh, to some world of universal human brotherhood and emancipation, only to have to deal with with Nazism. And some of them, like I said, even even the Trotskys of the world had to start rethinking things. And I think Deutscher did too, although Deutscher, I think Deutscher in the end tried to try to negate his own doubts about his own ideas, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. Also, I, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of these people made the the crucial mistake hmm. that Jews should not make, and that is to be a bit too optimistic. Hmm. Yeah, I think very optimistic about the possibilities for, for you know, sort of human advancement yeah. uh, and, and sort of But is that optimism, growth. but okay, but is that optimism does that lead us back to our original question, mm. which is, are there more Jewish geniuses? Does this tiny population believe that it, on, on some optimistic level that it can assert itself? And, you know, in England, they call this tall poppy syndrome, meaning mm. a, a, a flower that grows a little taller than the rest needs to be cut down. 
Um, and so is that sort of burgeoning optimism or, mixed with the climate or the sociological conditions of being an outsider, et cetera, et cetera? Is that what makes it f- possible that there have been at times Jews who participate on this kind of higher level of how do I how do I say this that they are able to shape and influence society, and then the kind of whole whole community pays for that. Uh, there, there's actually does that make any uh, sense? It it does. In fact, there's a there's an anecdote again about Trotsky. Sorry for keep. Keep going back to Trotsky. Seems but, like he's the only genius you know, Tony. I've asked a couple of times. <laughs> All right, I'm not going to say anything more about that. <laughs> no, 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 no. You say the anecdote. It's a good anecdote. Uh, the the um, actually, Eddie, you might have to help me out with the actual uh, name. But anyway, there's an anecdote about uh, Trotsky and the revolution, where uh, a, a, an elderly religious Jew comes to Trotsky and says something, something like, "The the the Trotskys make the revolution." And the Bronsteins pay for it. Oh, uh, right. This uh, was this was during the, this was during the the you know early nineteen twenties during the Civil War in in uh, you know Russia, the early Soviet Union, uh, and it was a horrible time for Jews. There were there had been hundreds of thousands of Jews killed in pogroms during this period. So this anecdote, and it could be apocryphal, but. Uh, you know, someone goes to Trotsky, some you know, rabbi or Jew goes to Trotsky and says, you know, it's the Trotskys who make the revolutions and the Bronsteins who pay for it. Um, and, you know, the implication being that, you know, this non-Jewish Jew, who this Jew who's rejected his, his past as a Jew, you know, was able to, you know, become the architect of the Russian revolution. Uh, but the common Jews were the ones who were murdered. They were they were the ones who paid for you know this supposedly great accomplishment. Hmm. We should say one of the architects of the Russian Revolution. He was one of the architects. Yeah, we got to give some credit to Lenin. Lenin gets some credit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not a Jew. Although. <laughs> <laughs> there are, oh there are books. There are books dedicated to demonstrating that he does have Jewish background. No, that's true. Yeah, the, pe- people claim that he had a Jewish grandmother. I don't know if that's really it's always true. the grandmother. It's I, I don't always know. You know, the grandmother. It, it, in theory, it shouldn't matter. It should but, not many, matter but, but many people, it, it does matter. <laughs> but see, this to- is. A, I think it's it, totally irrelevant. This is. <laughs> this is exactly what we're talking about, though. Claiming people. And forcing identities on them Mm. and them trying desperately to to forge their own identities and having that Mm. be rejected. But I still don't think we've really addressed this fundamental question of whether there is something to Jewish society and how it exists in the greater society or alongside it or on to the side it or, or... in a tiny space at the bottom of the closet of it or wherever we're allowed to be and how it's seemingly Jews take up more space, at least in these kind of um, extreme ways, whether it's as an artist or as a philosopher or et cetera, et cetera. Is that a thing? Well, you, you, you could make the claim uh, 
that to a certain degree, Jews, because they had a relatively highly literate society, uh, that they were primed to enter, uh, let's say, the 20th century and, and you know, engage in certain occupations and roles uh, that other people weren't. Uh, you know, clearly Jews were not peasants. Uh, they engaged in, uh, a lot of them engaged in trade. And um, what do you mean they weren't peasants? They didn't work. They, they generally, they generally did Jews. not. They did. They generally, mean they weren't serfs. So, so right. Yeah. So, you know, the pale in the pale of settlement, which held the largest Jewish population in the world during the 19th century. And it's about four to 5 million Jews. Uh, uh, Jews were not permitted to own and work land. Uh, they were not part of the traditional peasant class. They were relegated to, to live in, uh, you know, small and medium-sized towns. Uh, this is sort of the classic shtetl that, that people talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were uh, limited to, to engage in certain occupations. And uh, it made them to a certain degree more mobile than other people. Uh, they weren't necessarily attached to land. And actually, what you know, one interesting component of that, to this, and I don't want to get off track, but um, the uh, you know uh, Zionism puts an enormous emphasis on land, and this is a really new phenomenon for Jews, because for you know two thousand years they really didn't have any land, and it wasn't important. Uh, and, you know, suddenly you have this new phenomenon where, you know, it's, you know, the most important thing. So that's interesting. What you're saying is that Jews are forced into uh, these economic roles that require education. And so there is a greater... Right, that, right. not only do they require, not only do they, not only do they require education, but they require linguistic flexibility and facility. Mm -hmm. So if you need to, you know, buy wheat or wood or someone from a peasant, you need to be able to speak their language because they're not going to, they're more often than not, not going to learn your language. In some cases they did, but in, in most cases they didn't. So... Jews were required to have a linguistic uh, flexibility and facility. Um, you know, in Eastern Europe, generally, it was um, common to know multiple languages. Uh, you know, as Americans, I think that that's unusual or it's yeah. to be considered unusual. Uh, but, you know, I could just anecdotally, I could say that my grandmother knew, you know, four or five languages very well. And she had no education whatsoever. Um, and, you know, to me, that's kind of incredible. So you have these people who are sort of primed to be able to travel, to be mobile, to, to be willing to take certain risks, uh, you know, on new businesses, new technologies that other people may not be willing to take. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, they, they also, you know, they weren't, they just generally were not permitted to be in craft guilds in Europe. Uh, so, uh, they, they didn't, you know, so as a result, they had to, you know, find something else to support themselves financially. And they often took risks 
uh, doing so. And you could think of, you know, uh, you could think of Jewish immigrants who came to the United States and, you know, through their support behind uh, new technological phenomena like film, uh, TV, uh, comic books. You know, there are all these, you know, there are all these industries that, that Jews got into because they were shut out of other industries. And this had been an issue for, you know, I would say a thousand years that, you know, they had to figure out ways to survive financially and they were willing to get involved in things that, you know, other people didn't have to because they already had jobs. You know what, just to pick up on what Eddie's saying, you know, you, you could put it this way, that Jews coming out of the margins and the nooks and crannies of the societies in which they lived, um, as they approached the modern world, they had basically three options. One is to fit into the societies the best they could, to make their way into society wherever they found openings, mm -hmm. such as the types of people who went into the entertainment industry that Eddie's describing. Then you had those who said, no, we don't like the way society is. We don't want to be a part of it. We want to overturn it. Think of, again, Marx and others. Then you had a third option, which is there's no hope for Jews in society and uh, what in, in the societies where we live one way or the other, we're going, we're getting out. We're going to build the Jewish homeland in Palestine. Those were the th basically the three options. Either you try to fit in somehow or you try to overturn it, uh, society through revolution, or you just clear out and create a Jewish homeland. That Wait, was it. fourth option, fourth option, What's dig in your heel, dig in your heels. Oh, deal your heel, right, Seth, yeah. fourth option. You, meaning you stay or you you really become orthodox and cling to that. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, you also- well, Stay as you are. Or stay, well, you can't quite stay as you are because the world is bearing down on you. So you have to be, because there's so many pressures to, 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 to secularize, you had to work harder to be orthodox. Yeah, that's you true, know? that's true. But there's also other variation. There are those who converted to Christianity, which is a way of fitting in, not not the, the path most Jews took, but that is an extreme way. It's a radical form of assimilation, which some some Jews took. And so we have variations of these three options or four options uh, that we're talking about. But, you know, the, the final option that I mentioned, and Eddie started off by talking about building a Jewish homeland rooted in the soil, you know, this is this is what Deutscher, for one, worried him tremendously, because on the one hand, he said, y Europe, European civilization failed the Jews. It, it failed them. We have that mm -hmm. because of the Holocaust annihilated them. And so if that's true, isn't it correct that the Zionists were right in wanting to get out? And, and so what Deutscher said about this, and he wasn't unusual at all among Jews of his type, you know, he said, well, I was wrong. I'm no longer an anti-Zionist, he said. I was wrong about to have faith in Europe. I gave up. He said, I'm giving up my anti-Zionism. Jews need a homeland. And he even said, I wish I would have done something to help save Jews. Yeah, yeah. He actually says something like, if, if you know, I wish I had, you know, instead of preaching communism in the late 1930s, I wish I, you know, I would have saved a lot more people had I been telling Jews to go to Palestine. He says that. And at the same time, he can't bring himself to accept Zionism in principle. So he 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 abandons his anti-Zionism, but he can't accept Zionism because for him, the idea of building a Jewish nation state is a rejection of the ideals 
the grand universalist ideals of, of his heroes. Mm -hmm. So he can't accept that either. And so he's, he, he's, he, he, um, after the Holocaust is trying to figure out, well, what are, are all my ideals an illusion? And he, he writes the non-Jewish Jew as a way of saying, we have this great tradition. We should see it as a tradition. This tradition has been tested by the Holocaust. The Holocaust is testing us. And what we have to do, though, is still hang on to these ideals despite the Holocaust. Why? Because the world can't be saved. The world can't be redeemed unless we believe in this idea of universal human emancipation. Zionism is necessary. He concedes that. He says it's necessary, but it's insufficient. It's not going to save the Jews because the Jews can't save themselves unless humanity is saved. And, and so what, what he does is create this lineage, this tradition of the non-Jewish Jew. He gives it a name and he said, these are the ideals we have to carry forward despite the Holocaust. Right. And he inserts all of these historical figures in it, you know, ranging from, you know, he starts with Elisha ben Abuya. Uh, who's a second century rabbi who became a heretic. Uh, and, you know, he goes from there to Spinoza, or he also mentions uh, Uriel Acosta, uh, who was a Portuguese, uh, actually a Portuguese Catholic from a Murano family who converted himself and his family to Judaism in Portugal and then moved to Amsterdam only to be, only to find that he didn't agree with rabbinic Judaism because he, it was something he had never encountered and he winds up getting excommunicated. Uh, and it, it's, and he goes from there to, to Spinoza, uh, to Marx, to Trotsky, Rosa Luxemburg. And he creates this kind of lineage of this type, this non-Jewish Jew type, uh, in order really to find a place for himself, uh, in his intellectual universe. Yeah. Right, because also what we're talking about, um, there almost seems like there's this inherent idea that the Jewish the Jewish society will always accept you, and that is just not in any way the case. They, they, you can be rejected on both sides. It's mm -hmm. not just the intellectual who's rejecting Judaism. They can be rejected by their community and excommunicated in the same way that you were just saying. Right, the Jews will only reject you if you do something bad. Well, you know, if if I like if rejecting Hank, if, Judaism, well, you know, they if, reject know. you back. <laughs> I have to say, I haven't heard excommunication as an idea. Is an is a um, seems right, like a because, rare concept. Right. It's a, it's rare. There are you get a letter. There are you, you get a little postcard. Truly, uh, though, well, if the <laughs> if the Mormons excommunicate you, they send you a letter. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, they let you know you are no longer part of the church. You have to turn in your your Mormon underwear. I know people that this has happened. I mean, no jokes. This I know someone that this has happened to. If they well, find they out should, you're they, gay they, or that you're having an affair or whatever, I mean, they. I think what they do is they have a trial, but it's this show trial where they basically bring you in and shame you. They give you a letter. Well, they say you're due on this day. You come in, and then they tell you what they think of you. And then they how, tell come you, how, how come there's no Netflix series on this? This sounds great. I'm sure there probably is one coming, but <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, I'm not sure we answered this question, fellas. I'm just I don't think we did. I think we, we did. did. Are there more no, Jewish geniuses? There, like, no, there are no more Jewish geniuses. Uh, seems, like, seems like if you look at the proportions of a population, there are. 
I, it depends what you describe as Jewish geniuses, but if you go by Deutscher's definition, then there are more. You know, if you uh, ask my, you know, if you were to ask my mother, mm. yes, that's she, a, she would. She that's wouldn't answer because yes. she, she she wouldn't answer because she's dead. But you know, if had she been alive, she would have said, "Of course, there you're a genius." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why the question the question's so hard to discuss. What's a genius? Because, is I guess what we should have. Right, exactly. How do you how do you de- how are you defining genius? That's a good. That's a very yeah. good point. But yeah. we already defined it. We defined it the way Deutscher defined it. Which is? Which is uh, people of high intellect and courage who look at the world around them and say, this is unacceptable. It has to become radically different. And then they, and then they commit their lives to it and sometimes pay with their lives for it. Yeah. You know, I find the world unacceptable, but I'm not willing to commit. No. But, you know... This podcast is your real act of genius, Eddie. I think that's what you may <laughs> well, you not what? you may not uh, want to accept the mantle, but I feel like the, the Jews twelve are now, people listening don't feel the same way as you. The Jews are now really going to reject me. Uh, the Jews have rege- many people have rejected. Let's hope you, not. But- they're ca- they're writing the checks <clears throat> over at Yuvo. You know, I'll always have the amigos. <laughs> Before we get to the amigos, is is your rejection of junior Jewish genius? Uh, does that come from a belief that they don't exist, or a sense of inadequacy on your part? Uh, I would say all of the above. All of the above. Okay. No, I I, I think that Which you brings know. us back to the Moyle Trotsky. <laughs> Trotsky the Moyle. <laughs> Wasn't that his autobiography? No, it was. Yeah. No, it was. He wrote an eight hundred page autobiography about that. Uh, it, it goes into incredible, incredibly rich and pungent detail about his early years as an apprentice, an apprentice mile. Well, yeah, they practice on potatoes, you know. He was a, I was going to say he was a traveling uh, countryside moyle because we know he came from an agrarian background. So. Mm-hmm. He traveled hundreds of miles to perform. Uh, uh, what do moyles do again, Eddie? Um, they... Um... No, you're wrong. They they trim trim the meat. Oh, God. All right, gentlemen. (laughs) Well, this has been interesting. Um, Thank you to our audience for listening. And uh, we hope you found this interesting and that we'll have uh, another example of Jewish ephemera, the bazaar, coming your way very soon. I'm one of your hosts, Jessica Chaffin. And I'm here with Mr. Tony Michaels. Great, great seeing you again, Jessica. Take care. Always a pleasure. And of course, the great genius of Yiddish culture, Eddie Pornoy. Completely untrue, but uh, thank you for having me. (laughs) Thanks to both of you. I had a terrific time. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you soon.